everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Got another news show for you this week. We're going to talk a little bit about Facebook and Google and some others that have pioneered a new project to allow you to transfer your data to another service. Hmm, too good to be true? We will talk about that and find out. Uh, also, the Ancestry Service 23andMe just entered a deal to share your DNA with a massive pharma company. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, talk to you about a nasty Bluetooth vulnerability that's been found. And uh, you may have noticed if you use Chrome that you've been seeing a lot of insecure websites lately. I'll tell you what that's about. And finally, we're going to talk about several mobile add-ons and browser plugins that have been caught doing some pretty bad things. And I'll tell you what you can do about that. So first up, let's talk about the data transfer project. Um, and I'll just uh, I'll start by introducing it just by reading straight off their website, and uh, they'll, then we'll dig into a little bit more about what this really means. The Data Transfer Project was formed in 2017 to create an open-source, service-to-service data portability platform so that all individuals across the web could easily move their data between online service providers whenever they want. The contributors to the Data Transfer Project believe portability and interoperability are central to innovation. Making it easier for individuals to choose among services facilitates competition, empowers individuals to try new services, and enables them to choose the offering that best suits their needs. Current contributors include Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Microsoft. The Data Transfer Project is a collaboration of organizations combined to building a common framework with open source code that can connect any two online service providers, enabling a seamless, direct, user-initiated portability of data between the two platforms. The Data Transfer Project uses services' existing APIs and authorization mechanisms to access data. It then uses service-specific adapters to transfer that data into a common format and then back into the new services API. Okay, so a lot of terms in there. Uh, first of all, an API, as we've said uh, before on this program, is an application programming interface. So basically, it's kind of how computers and services talk to each other. They define these protocols, these kind of defined ways of exchanging information um, and then they make that available publicly to other uh, people or other services so they can kind of talk to each other in an automated in an automated way so what is this trying to tell us so first of all the big question is is why are they doing this because this is actually something they've resisted for well since forever right as soon as you get big and you become the de facto go-to service for whatever like uh, google and facebook and twitter have basically become you don't want anybody moving somewhere else. That's the whole point, if, especially since you're basically advertising-based. You want to keep as many people as possible, and you want to make it as hard as possible for them to leave. So why are they doing this? Well, that is a great question. <laughs> um, part of this, I'm sure, is being um, prodded from the GDPR, which is the EU regulations for data privacy. And um, I think it must have some stuff in there for data portability as well, which basically... You know, because once you, know, once you get all these people, Facebook's a perfect, perfect example of this. Um, they've got so many people that it's basically hard to leave because where would you go? You know, MySpace and Friendster and all these other ones that used to be exist are long since gone. And there really is no other viable alternative because everyone is on Facebook. If you want to talk to somebody, you go to Facebook because that's where they already are. And because they've, you know, amassed, you know, billions of people using their product. I think I saw uh, somewhere that's one third of the <laughs> one third of the people on the planet use Facebook, you know, why would you go anywhere else? Because, you know, if you want to talk to friends and family, that's where they are. So this has got a few problems with it. So one of them being, you know, great, you know, it's a little kind of late for that now. But if so, if there were to be a Facebook competitor and you could convince all your friends and family to go over there, then this project would ostensibly allow you to transport 
port all of your old data from one to the other. So you could kind of take all your posts and your pictures and events and contacts and calendar stuff and, you know, all the things that you spent all these years putting into Facebook, you could take into new Facebook or whatever the next thing is. So part of this, you know, you know, from a practical standpoint, I'm not sure how much this is going to matter. It's better than not having it. That's for sure. Uh, and the EFF, of course, has weighed in on this as well. And uh, so uh, let me let me read you a little bit about their take on this, and then I'll come back and give you my parting thoughts. So from the EFF's uh, response to this, they say, Data portability allows a user to take their data and move it to a different platform. Many tech companies have long supported data port- portability as a core value. Facebook, however, has a history of taking advantage of the data portability features offered by other companies as a means to an end, growing its own network. In its early years, for example, Facebook benefited immensely from Google's portability efforts. Facebook encouraged users to download their contact lists from Gmail, then upload them to Facebook in order to build out its social network. At the same time, Facebook has always dragged its feet when it comes to portability from its own platforms. In its early years, Facebook displayed users' email, users email addresses on their profile pages, not as text, but as images making it frustratingly difficult to download lists of friends' contact information, or even to copy and paste a single address into an email client. Until recently, Facebook's data export tool provided users with an inscrutable, unparsable mess of text and HTML. Europe's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which took effect May 25th of 2018, declares data portability a basic right for all European citizens. In accordance with GDPR, Facebook's newest export tool allows users to everywhere to download their data in a machine-readable JSON format. That's J-S-O-N. That's a computer format. Don't worry about that right now. Uh, But Facebook's export tool only includes a small subset of the data the company actually has about its users, and it falls short of empowering users to pick up their data and take their business elsewhere. Facebook's newest data export tool exports friends lists, the building blocks of the social network, and arguably the data most critical to its competitive advantage in the form of plain text names without unique identifiers. This makes it impossible for users to take their list of friends to a competing service. Any social network trying to parse Facebook's list won't be able to tell whether John Smith refers to John Smith in Haight-Ashbury, John Smith in Sri Lanka, or John Smith, the 17th century British explorer. Facebook has claimed it doesn't want to let users export their friends' email addresses for privacy reasons, but remember that Facebook was more than happy to take advantage of Gmail's tool to grow its own network. Facebook could build a better export tool without raising tough privacy questions. Associating names with unique identifiers like John Smith, user number 1003, blah, 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 would allow competing services to disambiguate common names. It's not just competing social media companies that would benefit. Facebook friends lists and are essentially rich contact lists that give its other products, especially WhatsApp and Messenger, a distinct competitive advantage. Facebook has built on data ported from the incumbent services of its time. Now it's time to return the favor. So EFF there kind of echoes some of my own concerns. Actually, just reading from the data portability project, it doesn't even sound like it's really meant for users. Like it's not meant for you to go and download all your Facebook data and then upload it somewhere else. What sounds like what they want you to do is say, you go to Facebook and say, okay, I want to go to new Facebook. That's the cool place to be. And I want to move all my stuff over there because they protect my privacy and you don't. So uh, I want you to send my data to, to new Facebook. Uh, and then they take care of it in the background for you. You never actually see your data, which you can argue is you know, convenient for you. Um, 
But in reality, what they really need to do is they need to let you have access to your own data as well. So anyway, it's an interesting thing. I'm kind of surprised, honestly, they're doing it, but I think they were probably forced to do it for GDPR. So again, there's another instance of GDPR, even though it's not in effect here in the United States, actually having an important impact on these companies because they're global companies. And luckily, at least in some cases, the things that they're implementing for GDPR in the EU uh, are things that we're going to benefit from as well. So it's not that this is a bad idea. It's not that it's uh, not, I'm not glad that they're doing it. It's just that it's from a practical speak, uh, practical standpoint, um, it's not quite as good as it may look on the surface, but it's a good start, first step and we'll see where this goes. Next up, we're going to talk about 23andMe, uh, which is an ancestry service, kind of like Ancestry.com. It's, you know, you swab your mouth, you send them some spit, uh, they look at your DNA, and then they use that to try to find your family tree. Uh, sounds very convenient, really cool, and, and it is. You know, if that's all they did with it, that'd be great. Um, however, you know, now that they've got this massive database of DNA, you know, they're, obviously they're looking for other ways they can monetize that data. And they have found it by working with Big Pharma. So let me read to you a little bit of this article from Motherboard. They say, they start out <laughs> saying exactly what I've been telling you guys. Sorry, let me just read the article. You really, really shouldn't give your DNA to genomics companies like 23andMe or Ancestry. As the recent arrest of the Golden State Killer reminded us, these genetic databases are a goldmine for law enforcement. Caching serial killers isn't bad, of course, but problems start to arise when, say, these genetic databases are used to target people for deportation. But in case you needed another reason why voluntarily giving your DNA to companies is a bad idea, on Wednesday, this would be last Wednesday or Wednesday before, the genomic ancestry company 23andMe announced it was forking over its DNA data to the world's ninth largest pharmaceutical company, GlaxoSmithKline. The exclusive partnership gives GSK access to 23andMe's database that includes the genomes of over 5 million people. The agreement was pioneered by the two companies' chief scientists, blah, 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 who previously worked together at another drug company called Genetech. Indeed, the partnership is a sweet deal for both companies. 23andMe sold GSK a $300 million stake for the four-year agreement, and GSK gets exclusive access to one of the world's largest private genetic databases. Ostensibly, the genetic information is going to be used for research and development of innovative new medicines and potential cures. When a customer signs up for 23andMe's services, you have the option to choose whether or not uh, their data included in the future, uh, whether or not to have your data included in future research trials. According to a blog post by the company's CEO, customers can choose to opt in or opt out of studies at any time. Nevertheless, 23andMe says 80% of its customers choose to allow their data to be used in future research. There's nothing wrong with using DNA to develop medicines, of course, but problems start to arise when this medicine is then sold back to the public at exorbitant rates. As the, inf as the infamous farmer bro Martin Screlly demonstrated, pharmaceutical companies can and will make life-saving drugs prohibitively expensive to juice their bottom line. This means that 23andMe customers will, in effect, be charged twice for any potential innovative new medicines their DNA helps produce. The first time, they pay for the DNA sequencing service. The second time, they pay for the medicine that it helped create. A more equitable solution, according to Peter Pitts, the president of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest, would be to pay 23andMe customers for their genetic data when it's used in research. Quote, are they going to offer rebates to people who opt in so their customers aren't paying for the privilege of 23andMe working with, for, with a for-profit company in a for-profit research project? Pitts asked NBC News. When two for-profit companies enter into an agreement where the jewel in the crown is your gene sequence and you are actually paying for the privilege of, our, 
privilege of participating, I think that's upside down, unquote. Right, so a lot of things to go over there, but I've said multiple times when you, you've got to at least understand that when you're when you're giving your DNA to these people, definitely read the fine print. But you, I mean, no matter what the fine print says, you should just assume that that data is going to be used for something else. And as we've seen, you you also have to realize that's not just you that you're affecting. You're affecting everybody basically in your bloodline family uh, because you share DNA with those people. So there's that. So from a privacy aspect. There's that. But also, look at what else is going to go on here. I mean, they've got this huge treasure trove of DNA samples, and they want to monetize that, right? They're a public company. They make money. That's how capitalism works. Um, and unfortunately, the way a lot of these people are going to approach this is they're going to, you know, somewhere in the terms of service that you're, you're signing up for, you're probably agreeing to give this stuff away. And yes, there may be a way for you to go back and try to find that one toggle, that one button or checkbox you can say, hey, don't do this. But... I mean, it's probably, it was probably something very innocuous looking, right? It's said, you know, would you like to help in future research? Yeah, that sounds cool. Why would I want to do that? Well, in this case, it means that, you know, GlaxoSmithKline has your DNA and they may very well be developing really cool stuff, but then eventually they're going to sell that stuff back to you. And after using your DNA to do it, they're going to charge you big sums of money to do it. So anyway, I think that's an interesting idea that, you know, maybe we should get paid. And then maybe that's true for all of these data services, right? At Facebook, Google, all these companies where we're giving up our data, maybe one of the solutions is, you know, yes, the services are free, but they're making more than just their money back on that, right? They're, the services they provide you are, are, are fairly cheap. Uh, compared to the actual money that they're making off of you. So, you know, maybe with, there needs to be a profit sharing angle here where if you're going to share your data, then you need to get a cut, right? Anyway, so the point with the 23andMe thing is if you have subscribed to the service and you've used it, you might want to go back and look at your settings and decide whether or not you want to participate in these sorts of sharing. Uh, hopefully that setting is easy to find. If not, certainly contact customer support and say, hey, you know, how can I turn this off? All right, next up, just a quick note. Uh, there have been some kind of nasty Bluetooth bugs um, found recently. Uh, now, in a lot of cases for things like your uh, Apple, for instance, has already patched all these things. So if you're up to date with all your Apple software, and you should always be up to date because, I've always, as I always say, you've got to stay patched. Um, so make sure you're, you're, you're taking those software updates as they come out for both for your phone and your iPad and for your computer. Uh, and this goes for anything, right? Windows as well, Android as well. Uh, take those updates as soon as you get them. Uh, so there's been some, I could read this, but it's very highly technical. Basically, they found some bugs in the Bluetooth specification that if somebody is within wireless range of you uh, and they've got the right tools, which uh, someone's got to come out with and then give away to everybody else. So it's not a matter of even being smart enough to create these tools. Only one person needs to be smart enough to create these tools and the hackers share these amongst themselves. And then it becomes child's play uh, to use these kind of tools. So, but if anyway, if, so, if somebody's within wireless distance of you and your Bluetooth device, uh, they can get up to some no good and basically start, you know, prying into the, the communications of your Bluetooth stuff. Um, now, again, you know, smart devices that we have, uh, they can, they can produce patches for the real problem here, as Bruce Schneier puts it is, uh, this is serious. Update your software now and try not to think about all the Bluetooth applications that can't be updated. <laughs> so, so you can update your devices and your smart devices. And if you're set correctly, will update themselves. That's all great. But what about the, you know, less smart devices, you know, your Amazon echoes, your 
speakers, your headphones, your other things that are probably never going to get these software updates. You know, that's that's part of the problem with this new Internet of Things and highly connected world that we live in with all these great wireless technologies um, is that bugs are found and these devices need some way to get updated. And a lot of them are just too cheap. They're just they 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 don't cost enough money for the companies to invest the time and the effort required to put in the basic frameworks that allow these things to to have software updates. And that means these things are going to be vulnerable. And the only way to fix them is to throw them out and get something new that is hopefully has got software in it that works better. So anyway, not much you could do about those devices right now, unfortunately. But at the very least, make sure you get your your phones and your uh, mobile devices. Uh, and your computer's up to date with all the latest software fixes. All right, next up, if you use the Chrome browser, uh, and statistically speaking, most of you do, uh, it's the most popular web browser on the planet, I think 60% market share. Um, you may have noticed in the last week or two that there are websites being shown as insecure. Um, and it's really nothing changed except for Chrome. Uh, and let me just read uh, a little bit from this article from Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog. It says, in 2017, Google's Chrome browser started marking transactional sites that weren't using HTTPS as not secure. Starting the 24th of July, uh, think of it as the Google Chromepocalypse, that transactional versus everything else difference comes to a decisive end. As of Tuesday, this was last Tuesday, I believe, uh, all HTTP pages will be slapped with the not secure label, regardless of whether they're transactional or not. In its ongoing efforts to make encrypted, i.e. HTTPS, web connections the norm, as opposed to the exception, we can all welcome Chrome version 68, the stable version of which is due Tuesday, again, in the past. With Chrome 68, Google takes one more step towards streamlining that address bar, moving to the point where it only informs users when a site is insecure. It gets better from here. Starting with Chrome version 69, due September 4th, the secure label will disappear from HTTPS websites and the green padlock will turn gray. At some point after that, the padlock will go poof and completely completely disappearing from the address bar, leaving an empty save for the URL, which is the address. No more telling us when something is good, HTTPS, we'll just be told when it's bad, HTTP. Okay, so that's from the article. So basically what that's saying is, you know, nothing's really changed. It's just that Google has changed its policy on what it, on how it is letting you know that you are accessing a website that is not encrypted. And why is that bad? Well, depending on the website, maybe it's not that big a deal, but there's really no reason at this point because the certificates that allow for the HTTPS are free and easy to get now. There's just really no reason why every website should not be HTTPS. You know, even if you're just, you know, looking at something, we talked about transactional. So transactional, by that it was usually kind of meaning, well, you're buying something like for your, you're exchanging information with the website. Um, you're giving a credit card information. You're, you know, logging in on some form. Um, you know, you're basically entering data that, that should be private. And so that really needs to be done over an encrypted channel. And it's encrypted when it's HTTPS, that S is for secure. 
And it, it's good to know, or good to note, that that does not really say much of anything about the site you're talking to necessarily. You'd have to dig in further to the certificate and things like that to verify that you're actually talking to who you're thinking you're talking to. What it really just means, HTTPS just means that there's nobody between you and the person you're talking to that can sniff out what you're doing. The, the information traveling back and forth between you is completely opaque. Um, that's the main thing to take away there. So there, there's really no reason why the all sites shouldn't be that way. And Google is using its market dominance um, to both as a search engine and as a browser maker and in other ways to basically prod companies into finally getting up to date and using HTTPS. So all that's really happening lately is that Chrome is now calling out those sites uh, even more. If it's not encrypted, if it's only HTTP, no matter what the site is now, even if it's not transactional, it's labeling that site as not secure. So that is why you're seeing that more often. It's not that a lot of websites have become less secure. It's just that Google's calling them out on it now. So uh, anyway, that's that. Uh, just so if you're seeing that a lot, that's why. Okay, and for our last story, uh, we're going to talk about browser plugins behaving badly. Um, and it doesn't really have to even be web browser plugins. These are also um, uh, add-ons and things that people install on their mobile devices as well usually for some sort of convenience. Um, sometimes uh, a lot of these cases are for ad blockers. Um, and, you know, most of these things are free. And as we've often said on this show, when something is free, you got to be worried that you are, uh, you know, that you're not the, the product here. Um, it's not always true. There are definitely still some altruistic sites out there that give away their products for free because that's just what they do. Uh, and then I'll talk to you about some of those plugins that I do recommend. But basically, what we're going to get to with this is you've really just got to be careful of what you do. Just don't be willy-nilly adding these things just because they're fun or convenient. Uh, at the end of the day, some of these things can be malicious. So, and, and some of them start out benign and end up being malicious, which we'll see in this story. So let me read you a little bit um, uh, from this, art, uh, a couple articles, actually. One is from Ars Technica. Let's start with that one. So it says, uh, people often use ad blockers, disk cleaners, and similar utilities to stop online trackers from monitoring their online activities. Now researchers have uncovered a host of apps and browser extensions downloaded more than 11 million times that keep a list of every website ever visited and send it to the servers operated by the developers. The snooping wares affect both Android and iOS users, as well as those who installed Google Chrome and Mozilla Firefox extensions, according to a blog post published Tuesday by AdGuard, a developer of ad blockers and privacy tools. AdGuard co-founder Andre Meshkoff said in the post that the extensions and apps make a list of every exact address of every page visited and combine it with a unique identifier he believes is generated when the extension or app is first installed. Quote, there are numerous ways of discovering your real identity from observing your browsing history, he wrote. It can be straightforward. For instance, there is no ambiguity in who could be visiting the page. HTTPS analytics.twitter.com slash user slash AY underscore Meshkoff slash tweets. Uh, even if you do not happen to visit such pages, such pages, there is still a high chance of exposing your real identity, unquote. All right, so then the, the article goes on to list some of these um, plugins. And let me just read off a couple of them here in case you're actually using these. Uh, one is called Block Site. Uh, it's an Android app, a Chrome extension, and a Firefox extension. There's another one called AdBlock Prime. Uh, there's a Mobile Health Club apps, uh, Speed Booster, Battery Saver, AppLock, CleanDroid. Uh, there's Popper Blocker, spelled P-O-P-E-R. Uh, and CRX Mouse, C-R-X-M-O-U-S-E. Uh, it's a Chrome extension. Um, 
these apparently are used by many, many people. Speed Booster in particular on Android has like 5 million installs, and Battery Saver has over a million installs. Um, the, the Popper Blocker, the Chrome extension, has over 2 million installs. So those are popular ones. If you're using those, you need to, <laughs> you need to remove them. Let me continue with the article, and you'll understand why. Meshkov told Ars that he believes all the wares were acquired by a company calling itself Big Star Labs. He said all the Android apps linked to the privacy policy similar to this one, which mentions Big Star Labs by name. The privacy policies are especially opaque because they appear in images rather than text that can be more easily indexed by search engines. Earlier versions of some of the apps contain no tracking code. Later versions of the same apps, by contrast, contain heavily obfuscated code that sends complete browsing histories. Meshkov says his research shows that Big Star Labs was incorporated in 2017. Attempts to contact the company representatives weren't successful, and no one responded to emails sent to the addresses included in the privacy policies. A search by ours shows that none of the offending Android apps or Chrome extensions were available in Play or the Chrome Web Store. Meshkov, however, said on Wednesday that his searches showed that the BlockSite Android app were still available in Play. Both the BlockSite and Popper Blocker Firefox extensions were also no longer available from, Mo- from Mozilla. Interestingly, the AdBlock Prime extension targeting iOS users could be installed directly from adblockprime.com where people or .co. Where people visited using uh, when people visited using Safari, there's no indication it was ever available in Apple's App Store. Anyway, they go on a little bit. Um, so it sounds like basically that Google and some of these others have and Firefox um, uh, have policed these things and removed some of these things from the the stores. I don't know if that actually means it would automatically uninstall them if you've already installed them. So if you have, I would certainly go uninstall them. And basically, the story here is that you know. Ad, you know, ad blockers, any of these really popular, convenient plugins that people uh, download all over the place that are free are prime targets for somebody to uh, coerce or corrupt. And that looks like that's what happened here. What they started out, you know, maybe being good and only doing the one thing they said they were going to do. And then they were bought up by this other company who decided to, to use these apps to uh, update them and then spy on people. Now, you know, who knows what they're actually doing with that data. They said that, you know, they, they claim to be trying to anonymize it, but I would just, un- I would just uninstall them. And I, it's kind of a, I know it's kind of, it seems like kind of a two-faced thing because that's, that brings us to our tip of the week really, uh, which is to kind of like we said earlier with the, the apps that you've authorized either on Twitter or Facebook or Google, uh, we had some trouble with, you know, some of those apps that you've authorized taking your permissions beyond what the original purpose was and use them for other other things, which basically is to monetize your data. Similarly, we need to be looking at all the other things that we've installed, our browser plugins, you know, the convenient things I'm going to talk to. Actually, the other one I want to talk to you about was this Pinterest one. There was a bug and a totally different story. There's a Pinterest plugin that somebody created that basically lets you easily pin something from any page, which... You know, most pages have the pin buttons on them anyway, but if they don't, this still allows you to pin something on your Pinterest page with this little plugin. Well, this particular uh, Firefox plugin uh, was found to be kind of randomly injecting text that you were entering into the web pages somehow. Now, this is just a bug. This wasn't wasn't apparently malicious. Um, but if somebody had done this maliciously, it could have gotten up to some really bad stuff. Um so again, it's just a bug. So even even though this company wasn't doing something on purpose, uh, it just goes to to show you that every 
Every one of these things you add increases your attack surface, as we like to say in the, in the security world. Um, it's just one more thing that could go wrong, one more thing that could be corrupted, one more thing that could be taken over or something that could go rogue uh, and, and kind of go away from its original purpose. So the tip of the week I have for you is just go back and review. Uh, if you go to Chrome or you go to Mozilla, you could go to your add-ons or your extensions uh, menu uh, and look what you have installed. Some of these things you probably forgot that you installed. If you're not using them, if you don't need them, just remove them. In some cases, you could just disable them. So you could try that to start if you want. Disable them first, and if you find out that you, you don't miss them, then you can go back and remove them later. Now, that said, the other half of this tip is there are some plugins that I do highly, highly recommend that you that you install. Uh, and if I had my druthers, this, is, this would be the only plugins you had installed. But, you know, I realize that, you know, there, <laughs> there will be other plugins you're going to want. Just evaluate them carefully and certainly keep track of whether or not, if you can, if they get bought out. Um... Uh, that could be a bad sign. So, uh, in fact, LastPass, uh, one of the ones I'm about to recommend to you was bought at one point, and I had definitely kept an eye on them since then, but uh, I think all is still good with LastPass, and it's still my recommended password manager by far. So, LastPass, uh, you should be using a password manager, so you should have the LastPass plugin installed on your browsers. Um, DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials. This is a company built on privacy, so uh, that is what the, <laughs> that is the way they do what they do. They do make their money off advertising. It's just not targeted advertising. It's not, they don't get their information to target you based on uh, collecting your data. They just use it based on whatever your search terms are. And they don't save the data. And they don't save those things against you either. So DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials is a great way to get the DuckDuckGo um, search engine as your default engine. And it also does some protections for you on your web pages. Some of these, uh, by the way, some of these plugins are going to overlap in their functionality. Uh, the other two I'd recommend highly would be Privacy Badger. Um, this is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. Uh, it's a privacy-based plugin. It helps to stop tracking. Uh, and it, it's really smart about it. And it's constantly updated. So that's a great one to have to help block Facebook tracking and all these other trackers. Uh, and finally, uBlock Origin. Uh, and this is an ad blocker. And, you know, while ads are what makes a lot of companies money and you're going to have some websites that are going to complain to you that hey you're using an ad blocker you know we need to make money you need to not block our ads and it, when that time comes if you wish you can whitelist that site and which basically allows ads to be shown on that one website but ads are more than just annoying these days ads are actually a venue or a vector uh, for injecting malware on your computer and i just can't in good conscience say that we should just let all ads appear uh, on your on your web pages. So uBlock Origin is a great way to, to tame those ads. It actually speeds up your browsing quite a bit because you're not downloading all that crap. Um, so it, while you should be very careful about all the plugins and add-ons you do put in, um, and you should reduce that down to the bare minimum, to me, this is the bare minimum. You should have an ad blocker. You should have a privacy blocker. You should have a good search engine tool. Uh, and you should have a, uh, a password manager tool. So uh, LastPass, DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials, uBlock Origin, Privacy Badger. Those are the ones I would install, and all the rest of them I would remove if you can. Okay, folks, and that brings us to the end of our show this week. Uh, do have some great interviews coming up. Uh, hopefully get those lined up soon, and we'll, uh, we'll get, those in, uh, get, out, get them out to you as soon as possible. I always enjoy the interview shows. Uh, and, of course, we'll, I'll keep the news coming, and I'll make sure to let you know the things you have to, uh, you have to know and what to do about them. 
Uh, got some really good news about the book. Uh, the third edition of uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons will be coming out here probably about a month. You can pre-order it on Amazon.com. It's also now because it's going to be, I got picked up by A Press. Um, and now that I've got a real, real for real publisher, it's going to be showing up in b- brick and mortar stores as well. You should be seeing it in Barnes and Nobles and, uh, all, you know, all the places you can only find, uh, you can find books. You should now be able to find my book. And if you don't see it on the shelves, be sure to ask and say, Hey, can you get a copy of this book in? So, uh, currently it's, it's listed as October, but it really should be coming out in September. So keep an eye out for the third edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. It's got a lot of great new content in it. I've re, uh, reorganized some of the chapters a little bit. Um, and I'm really, really happy with the new book. So be, be on the lookout for that and you can pre-order today. Also, if you'd like to support me and what I'm doing in my crusade to inoculate as many people as possible with the information about how to stay secure and private online, uh, check out patreon.com, um, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And you can search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find my page there and all the information about that. Would love to get some more patrons and, and spread the word. If you're already a patron, maybe you can find some friends and family that might want to contribute as well. Uh, every little bit helps, uh, and I would greatly appreciate that. And, of course, you could also go to the website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. There you can sign up for my bi-weekly newsletter. It covers a lot of the same materials we cover here as far as tips of the week. Sometimes it's a little bit different. And, of course, it's got the links and the pictures and everything right handy right there in the email. So sometimes that's that's easier than trying to listen to me talk about it on the radio and either try to remember it or write it down later. Uh, I do try to put things in the show notes. You can go to americaoutloud.com and search for my podcast there, and you will see some of this stuff there under the show notes as well. On the website, you will also find my blog. Uh, again, I try to do that every couple weeks or so, and you'll find a list of resources and you'll find a link to the book and all sorts of other great, great info. So check that out as well. Okay. That is enough. Uh, I will see you guys next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. And until then, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Thank you.